Welcome everyone to the How to Get the Most Out of College podcast. There's a lot of talk about where to go to college, but not nearly enough about how to go to college. And it's the everyday decisions that drive your success. I'm your host, Elliot Felix. I've been a consultant to more than 100 colleges and universities, helping them improve their student experience. And I'm the author of How to Get the Most Out of College, where I take what I've learned about how college works and make it work for you. Colleges and universities are known for their traditions, their stability. They've been around for hundreds of years doing amazing things, but maybe not known so well for how rapidly they change. They can actually change quite rapidly, but in the wake of that change, there are often still some outdated policies and procedures that may get in the way of student success or the institution achieving its goals. And so I'm really delighted to dig into this idea of outdated policies and procedures and, and how colleges and universities can change, can bring themselves into the current moment for today's students. And with us today as an expert in these matters, Dr. Drum McNaughton, he's a higher ed consultant. He's a systems thinker, works with tons of different colleges and universities on how they're structured, their governance, and helping them change for the sake of their students and their communities. Welcome, Drum. Thank you, Elliot. Pleasure to be here. Really excited to have you and, and would love to hear a little bit about how you got into higher ed and into this world of systems thinking and structure and governance and policies and procedures and change. Oh, gosh. How long have you got? 30 seconds. <laughs> okay. <laughs> let's make it real quick. Physics major at the Naval Academy, flew airplanes, spied on people for a living in the Navy, went into consulting, went into higher ed, got my doctorate. That's quick. That is quick. That's a broad and deep experience thinking in systems, thinking on the fly. Probably my first of several dad jokes coming over the next few minutes. But tell us a little bit about when you're working with colleges and universities, what are some of the typical pitfalls? What are some of the policies or procedures that they're working on or you're helping them work on that maybe don't work for today's students? Well, one of the big challenges that I see is higher ed can change, but a lot of times Absolutely. They, don't, they don't like to. I mean, you look at what happened at the beginning of COVID, institutions needed to change, go online to be able to stay in business, fulfill their mission of transforming students. Well, they did it. Some of them within a week or two weeks. That's to say that they can change. The challenge is Many institutions are stuck with the status quo. This is the way we've done it. It's one of those things like the sins of the father, the sins of the son. This is the way I learned to teach in the classroom. So it's good enough for me. It was good enough for my new students. The challenge is the new students think differently. We've got digital natives. You know, I had a colleague of mine, their kids were two, three years old. He was a website designer and built a company that did that back in the uh, early 2000s. And one of the girls sat down at the computer and just automatically knew what to do and never sat at a computer before. I mean, these kids understand technology far better than we do. And we've got to provide a education that is relevant to them and reaches them where they are, not where we are. So as you do that, what are some of the things you're, you're often helping folks with as they try and meet the students where they are? Well, you know, for example, one institution that we worked with, they were having challenges recruiting students of color, of different disciplines. And I just kind of suggested to their board, well, you know, your students 
aren't reflective of your board right now. The board was 24 people. 23 of them were older white men. And the one exception, the 24th person, was an older Latino man. And they couldn't understand why they couldn't attract the faculty. They couldn't attract the students of color. So it was one of those things of working with them to get them to understand that people are attracted to like people. That's just one example. Yeah, representation matters. So you're dealing with the board and you're trying to get the board to represent the people they're serving, supporting, and working with. What about the way that board or that institutional leadership functions? Are there things they can do, like you know, the way they're making decisions, the way they're sharing information? Are there things they can do to bring themselves into the current moment and be, you know, maybe less outdated as it were? Absolutely. We have a saying at our firm, people support what they help create. I mean, ask people what it is they need and want. They will tell you. We did a presidential onboarding for a flagship university, and we heard so many stories from students saying mental health. You know, when we try and get a hold of a mental health counselor, it takes us two weeks. I mean, two weeks, if somebody's having a mental health crisis, that is way too long. I mean, the crisis is either over or it's become unmanageable at that point. They wanted to change the hours that the mental health lines were open. Very reasonable. The students have got the answers. We, and many boards, you'll, you'll see, especially on private boards, you will see the list of all the trustees, and there'll be a little parentheses at the end. 1978, 1985, whatever, the year that they graduated from that institution. That's wonderful. It's a great opportunity for your alumni to come back. But the university is different than it was back when we graduated. I mean, I look at my alma mater, the Naval Academy. It is so different from when I first started. When I first started, there were no women. The first two years, women were not permitted to go to the Naval Academy. The last two years, they were. And now the graduating classes are very different. If I was a trustee at the Naval Academy, what would my experience be? Would it be what the students are now? Or would, it, would my memories go back and that be my frame of reference to what it was? More than likely the last. So it sounds like step one is representation. And step two is then building on that to listen to the students and understand the student perspective, what are their pain points, what are their ideas to solve it, like changing the hours. I would imagine that's certainly something we hear a lot. I, I certainly hear about, you know, paper-based forms and processes, you know, come to the office nine to five to sign this form, not working so well for a part-time student or an adult student, or, you know, I, I don't know anybody who's like dying to go to a physical place to sign a form. I would love to do that. Come on over. I've got a lot. I've got a stack of paperwork. Pay for my plane ticket. I'm glad to come. <laughs> no yeah. problem. Here's the other thing with that. There's a university up in, it's actually a state college up in Michigan called Grand Valley, Philly, Philomena. Oh gosh. Mandela, I believe her last name is. They've put together this consortium of six schools that is going out and trying new things. One of the things that she was putting together was getting high school juniors and seniors together to say, what is their expectations of the college experience? What are they looking to do? What are the things that they want and need? 
I mean, that's a fabulous idea of getting stakeholder input as to what you do. You know, you've got to build it with the end user in mind. And the end user is the student right now and the future student. And if you're not doing that, you're failing in your mission. And so let's say you've looked at the makeup of your leadership board and otherwise, and you've listened to your students and now you've got a bunch of great ideas. What does a college and university do to act on those ideas to actually, you know, get rid of the paper-based forms or change the counseling hours or whatever? That stakeholder-based approach for implementing change works great. When you ask people what it is they think you should do, when you take their inputs, it's critical and it helps to reduce any kind of resistance to change. Not, not entirely. You're not going to you're not going to please everybody, but that stakeholder-based approach will certainly mitigate a great deal of resistance to change. Put together a team. I mean, John Cotter's book, Leading Change, is probably the Bible for how to implement change, and it works for the most part in higher ed. There are a few exceptions to that, but it works. So step one in Cotter is you have to help people understand that the status quo is not an option, right? You have to make the case for change so people understand that something does have to change. Like, how do you help do that? I would imagine part of it is capturing and elevating and amplifying those student voices about, you know, we can't wait two weeks for a counseling appointment. How else do you make the case for change? Well, you have to be able to create that urgency around the change because nobody wants change for change stake. Here's what happens if we don't do anything. Exactly. One of my friends and colleagues, he walked into a college, a, a sm very small Christian college in the South. And he, when he uncovered the books and looked at it, it was a Monday. They didn't have enough money to pay people on Friday. The finances were that bad. That is an urgency for change. And he made some significant changes there, but he enlisted the people into the process. This is what we need to do. Are you on board? Another president that I just spoke with, Naveen Megahead up at National Lewis University up in, I believe, the Detroit area, she knew they were losing money and took a look at the books, went out to faculty, and faculty said, just do what you need to do. That's the importance. That's the criticality of having that urgency for change. It gets people engaged. It gets people motivated. And it sounds like transparency is a key part of that, sharing what you're doing, why you're doing it, how you're doing it, making sure, you know, you're bringing the faculty along so they see, you know, here's the situation, here's why we have to do this. Absolutely. You know, you'll have a lot of people go, well, how transparent do we need to be? No one can answer that question, okay? That is a very individual question. It's just like when I talk with boards and you say, are you a strategic board or are you a management board? Well, you know, we do this and that and et cetera. I said, are we micromanaging? I said, the only person who can determine if you're micromanaging is you. You've got to work with your administration to find out where that line in the sand is versus oversight versus micromanaging. And it's the same thing with transparency. What is enough? I tend to be very open with things and try not to hurt people's feelings, but sometimes it, it can't be avoided. You've got to know the truth of the situation so people can make the decision 
to go along or not with what is in their best interest. So we've been talking from the perspective of the college or university and how they can look at their own makeup, how they can listen, how they can lead, how they can change. I'd like to work the problem from the other direction and think about the student and the parent perspective. What can a student do when they encounter, you know, an outdated policy or procedure? How can they make themselves heard or how can they create change on their campus? Most institutions, especially your large public flagships, have got a student group. You know, it's usually elected, not usually appointed, but it's representative of the students. And they should, if I find universities that don't have student representation on the board, I strongly urge that they do it and they make that representation a voting member instead of, you know, you come, you listen to our meetings, but you don't have any voice in what's going on unless we ask you. You know, these student groups, student senate, whatever you call it, the same thing with faculty. You know, you've got to have that same type of thing as well. That's called shared governance. But the best way to do something like this is reach out to your student representative. From a parent's perspective, you know, I hate to say it, but a lot of times it really depends on how much money you're donating to the college. If you're donating mm -hmm. a lot of money to the college, you're probably going to have a little bit more voice. But even so, if it's a public institution, private institution, you can go to the enrollment people, you can go to the counselors, whatever the people are that you need to speak with and say, this is not working. Ultimately, you have the power in the situation because you're the one who's sending your child to that university. And if you don't like the policies, if they're not willing to change the policies in a way that really makes sense for everybody, you can always withdraw your student. You know, that's pretty pretty radical, but you hold the power in this. I like the suggestion of going through the student government. It may seem like those groups are powerless. My experience is really the opposite. On most campuses, they're quite powerful and listened to. And I'm thinking about a project we worked on that was going to involve not the consolidation, but the putting in one place a number of different student services to create like a one-stop shop to better serve students. And our first workshop did not go particularly well. You know, a lot of the partners, we called them partners, but they were not interested so much in partnering. They liked where they were distributed around the campus and the idea of all going into one place did not go over well with many of them. And we had the president of the student government in the workshop and he had a weekly breakfast with the president. Now, I don't know if that's typical on every campus, but in this case, you know, at the breakfast the next day, he shared that, you know, I went to this workshop that Brightspot facilitated and, you know, there was a lot of folks that didn't seem that focused on helping us and, you know, didn't recognize how inconvenient it is to get the shuffle from one place to the other. And after that, we had much more support because, you know, leadership was able to communicate how important this initiative was. And the catalyst, the thing that really turned the tide was the president of student government advocating, you know, for the other student listening and advocating. Mm-hmm. I don't know of many institutions who have the president of the student government body meet with the president on a weekly basis. A lot it's of a nice times, touch, think, yeah. Oh, it is very nice. But I think it's a great way to get change to happen a little bit more easily. Obviously, if you have the president's ear, you know, and, and something comes from above, then you usually get it done. Not always, but usually. Mm. But this is a great example of how you can use student government more effectively.
Yeah, absolutely. Final question here as we wrap up. We talk a lot about how there's a where you go to college and there's a how you go to college. And what's interesting is where you go can be chosen in a way by how you want to go, what you want to do in college. And I wonder if we could apply that same thinking here as students and parents are thinking about which college or university to attend. What are some things they could look for? What are some like telltale signs of a more forward thinking institution that may not have so many outdated policies and procedures? Like what would be on your forward thinking institution that wasn't, you know, as outdated? I've got a couple of ideas. One, I really like the way WASC, the Western Association of Schools and Colleges, does their accreditation. One of the former presidents of WASC, Ralph Wolf and I are good friends. And when Ralph was the president there, he made things very transparent. The visiting team report when they come in for accreditation is on the website. The commission action letter, which the commission is the one who votes on the results, et cetera, is on the website. You can go up there and take a look at these to find out what your prospective institution does, where it's good, where it needs some improvement. I think that's one critical thing. The other thing is to keep in mind that, especially from an undergraduate perspective, university is a transformative experience. Okay. Not only is it going to help you prepare for your career, but it's also going to change you in many other ways that emotional maturity, growing up, being self-sufficient, all of these kind of things, learning how to enjoy life. You know, not from a crazy, hey, we're going to go out and drink ourselves till we're stupid, but, you know, learning how to be around people, work with people, et cetera. It's really the culmination of your teenage years and becoming an adult. So when you're looking for a school, look for schools that embrace that mission of transforming students versus we're just here to give you a degree, you know, get you out in the workforce. It's two things. It's preparing you for the workforce in your life, but more importantly, it's helping you transform as a individual to a adult. It's great advice. You know, they can look at the representation. They can look at the transparency. Are they open about what they're working on, where they're trying to improve? They can think about the student government and use that. And they can think about and look at transformation. How do universities and colleges, how do they talk about their mission and what does that say about how focused they are on their students? I think this is really great advice. And I think the colleges and universities you work with, you know, to bring them into the 21st century are lucky to have you. And so are we to hear all this, these great insights. So thank you, Drum. Thank you, Elliot. I've enjoyed being a guest and I look forward to the next time we get a chance to chat. Thanks everyone for listening. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts and check out elliotfelix.com for all the episodes and the articles I've written, talks I've given, and more information about the book. Mm -hmm.